Not a drum was heard, not a funeral note, as his course to the rampart we hurried. Not a soldier discharged his farewell shot o'er the grave where our hero was buried. We buried him darkly at dead of night, the sods with our bayonets turning, by the struggling moonbeam's misty light and the lantern dimly burning. No useless coffin enclosed his breast, not in sheet or in shroud we wound him, but he lay like a warrior taking his rest, with his martial cloak around him. Few and short were the prayers we said, and we spoke not a word of sorrow, but we steadfastly gazed on the face that was dead, and we bitterly thought of the morrow. We thought, as we hollowed his narrow bed, and smoothed down his lonely pillow, that the foe and the stranger would tread o'er his head, and we far away on the billow. Lightly they'll talk of the spirit that's gone, and o'er his cold ashes upbraid him, but little he'll wreck if they let him sleep on, in the grave where the Britons had laid him. But half our heavy task was done, when the clock struck the hour for retiring, and we heard the distant and random gun, that the foe was sullenly firing. Slowly and sadly we laid him down, from the field of his fame fresh and gory. We carved not a line and we raised not a stone, but we left him alone with his glory. That poem by Charles Wolfe, written in 1816, is one of my favourites. It vividly captures the events around Sir John Moore's burial, an event that we will cover in great detail in today's episode. As Robert Harvey says, there are few things the British love as much as a fallen hero. Wolfe at Quebec or Nelson at Trafalgar. have to warn you, it's a long episode today. As we follow the demoralised British army north from Sahagoon through the mountains, chased by Napoleon's Grand Army. We'll see terrible indiscipline, fantastic bravery, the horror of dying children and the glory of one of the greatest feats of marksmanship in history. It's an epic story and I hope we can do it justice today. Before we begin, I'd like to ask if you could support the podcast in any way you can. Every episode is a ton of work. Now, it's a ton that I enjoy, but it is still a hell of a lot of work. This episode alone is 15,000 words long. All I ask is if you could do one of three things. Write a five-star review on your podcasting app. Subscribe to my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com or you can buy my new book, The Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. That's currently on sale both at Amazon and Apple Books, so you can get it at either. Any of those actions would be really appreciated and a great and easy way to show your support for what we're doing here, keeping British military history alive and hopefully inspiring a new generation to embrace their past and respect their ancestors. On Christmas Eve, 1808, as the British columns headed north from Sahagoon, the snow began to melt, replaced by icy torrential rain that soaked frozen uniforms and turned the roads into thick clay. The whole army was angered by Sir John Moore's order to retreat. They were convinced they could still beat the French. Private Thomas Pocock of the 71st Regiment recalled, on the 24th of December, our headquarters were at Sahagoon. Every heart beat with joy. We were all under arms and formed to attack the enemy. Every mouth breathed hope. 
We will beat them to pieces and have our ease and enjoy ourselves, said my comrades. I even preferred any short struggle, however severe, to the dreadful way of life we were at this time pursuing. With heavy hearts, we received orders to retire to our quarters. And we won't be allowed to fight. Surely we'd beat them, said an Irish lad near me. By St. Patrick, we beat them so easy. The general means to march us to death and fight them afterwards. End quote. As you might expect, morale quickly deteriorated. Provisions were low, the men were exhausted and hungry, and the weather continued to worsen. It was 50 miles of awful roads from Sahagoon to the Esla River, 30 more to Astorga, and beyond that another 150 to their eventual destination of Coruña on the north coast of Spain. The mood of the British troops wasn't helped by the surly attitude of the Spanish civilians they encountered. As Captain Gordon of the 15 Fazars, who we met in the last episode, explains, they often seemed unwilling to help the British, even refusing to sell them food or wine. He said, We were certainly not treated like friends by the Spaniards, who, although they saw us fainting for want of food, secret their provisions, and pretended to be unable to supply our necessities, even when the most ample payment was tendered. Adam Neal, a physician with the army, also spoke about this in a letter home. He says, Our soldiers were frequently incensed at finding that the offer of a dollar would not induce a peasant to part with a morsel of rusty bacon, a few garlic sausages or a bit of bread. On arriving of an evening at their villages, after a most fatiguing march, wet, wet to the skin, yet expiring of thirst, these unfeeling mortals often refused when requested by our men to run to the adjoining fountain for a pitcher of water or to procure a few heath roots to make a fire. Hence, frequent bickerings ensued, and sometimes a few blows, which the Spaniards generally deserved. End quote. At Benevente, the Redcoats' anger and frustration finally exploded. The drunkenness and looting became endemic. In the town's castle, British troops smashed antique furniture for firewood, tore down priceless tapestries to use as bedclothes, and seized any food or wine they could find. Thomas Pocock witnessed the changing mood of the army. Our sufferings were so great that many of the men lost their natural activity and spirits and became savage in their disposition. The idea of running away without even firing a shot from the enemy we'd beaten so easily at Vimeiro was too galling to their feelings. Each spoke to his fellow, even in common conversation with bitterness. Rage flashed out on the most trifling occasion of disagreement. The poor Spaniards had little to expect from men such as these, who blamed them for their inactivity. Every man found at home was looked upon as a traitor to his country. Why is not every Spaniard under arms and fighting? The cause is not ours, and yet we are to be the sufferers. Such was the common language, and from these feelings pillage and outrage naturally arose. Things became so bad that on the 27th of December, General Moore issued the following general order. The commander of the forces has observed with concern the extreme bad conduct of the troops at a moment when they are about to come into contact with the enemy, and when the greatest regularity and the best conduct are the most requisite. The Spanish forces have been overpowered, and until such time as they are reassembled and ready to begin to come forward, the situation of the army must be arduous, and such as to the call for exertion of qualities the most rare and valuable in a military body. These are not bravery alone but patience and constancy under fatigue and hardship, 
obedience to command, sobriety, firmness, and resolution. End quote. He then continued countering his many critics who had been openly condemning his strategy. It's impossible for the general to explain to his army the motive for the movement he directs. When it is proper to fight a battle, he will do it, and he will choose the time and place he thinks most fit. In the meantime, he begs the officers and soldiers of the army to attend diligently to discharge their parts and to leave to him and the general officers the decision of measures which belong to them alone. It's clear that Moore was really feeling the pressure here, not only from the rank and file, but even from his own senior officers, who seemed unaware of how perilous their predicament was. After all, his relatively small force was being pursued by Napoleon himself and the massed ranks of his victorious Grand Army. On the 28th, the last elements of the British Army managed to cross the swollen Eslo River by the bridge at Castro Gonzalo. Crawford's Light Brigade formed the rear guard and were harassed the whole time by the chasseurs of the Imperial Guard. These were some of Napoleon's most elite troops and they were desperate to impress their commander-in-chief who was just a full few miles behind them at Valderas. The bridge had been blown up by the British engineers, but the resourceful French cavalry quickly found a ford just 300 yards down the river and quickly sent across three squadrons, about 500 men, commanded by General Lefebvre. Lefebvre. The British cavalry pickets under Colonel Otway quickly attacked them, but they lacked the numbers to push the French back across the river. They broke off the action and withdrew to the walls of Benevente town. Here they were joined by three troops of hussars from the King's German Legion, it was about 150 men in total, who drew their sabres and immediately charged the French. But muddy broken ground wasn't conducive to a cavalry charge and it quickly stalled. Lefebvre, sensing a victory, formed his men into line and began a charge of their own. But from out of the thick damp haze, General Paget suddenly appeared at the head of the 10th hussars Warned in good time of the arrival of the French, he had managed to keep his troops concealed, waiting for the right moment to strike. Now it came. The ground shook as his horsemen smashed into the French left flank. Sabres flashed, men screamed and blood flowed as the French were forced back. Lefebvre, realising that he was in trouble and beyond help, ordered a desperate retreat. The fight resembled a bloody horse race as the British desperately tried to close with and destroy the French before they could escape. Spanish civilians watching from the city walls cheered and shouted, Viva los ingleses! The rumour quickly spread through the British rearguard that Napoleon himself was watching the action from the heights behind the Essler. Ben Harris of the 95th Rifles, who had rushed forward with his comrades when the battle began, described the scene. The encounter was tremendous to look upon, and we stood for some time unranked watching the combatants. The horsemen had it all to themselves. Our dragoons fought like tigers, and although greatly overmatched, drove the enemy back like a torrent and forced them again into the river. As they reached the banks of the Essler, panic overtook the French horsemen who crowded together in confusion. The British pounced on them, slashing with the brutal broad blades of their sabres, killing and wounding 55 and taking 70 more prisoner. One officer of the King's German Legion remembered the wounds inflicted on the French as quite horrific. Arms severed, heads split in half, and even one man cut through the face from ear to ear. General Lefebvre himself, a sulky fellow in scarlet and gold with a bloody wound across his forehead, as one man remembered, was amongst the captured. 
An 18-year-old German horseman named Bergman, mounted on a fast horse and skilled with his sabre, had forced the French general to surrender. Before naively allowing an English hussar named Grisdale to take his prize and, prize and claim the plaudits. This action outside Benevente brought the British columns a little bit of time to escape. They marched quickly, reaching Astorga on the 29th of December. Here they were surprised to find the town crowded with the battered remains of General La Romana's Spanish army, who were also busy retreating from the French. Captain Gordon was shocked by the sight of them. They were ill-clothed, many without shoes and even without arms. A pestilential fever raged amongst them. They had been without bread for several days and were quite destitute of money. Sir John Moore had requested that La Romana leave the roads to Galicia clear for the British. He had also asked him to destroy the bridge at Mancia. He did neither, and now the British army found itself forced to compete for limited provisions and space on the roads. The Spaniards, desperate for food and drink, descended on the local inhabitants, stealing whatever they could find, often at gunpoint. This was a dangerous example for the Redcoats, many of whom were more than happy to emulate their allies. Moore had been considering making a stand in the passes behind Astorga, but the reality of the situation was such that he decided it would be too dangerous. His plan was now the evacuation of his army from Spain. The only question was whether the army would march to Coruña or to Vigo to rendezvous with the navy. After considering his options, Moore decided to split his army once more and send Crawford and Alton's light brigades towards Vigo, while the rest of the army would continue towards Coruña. He believed that this would have the dual advantage of keeping both routes open while relieving some of the burden on the overstretched commissary department that was unable to source enough food for the entire army. At the town of Bembibre, home to enormous vaults full of wine, discipline finally collapsed. The troops left their ranks to rob, plunder and drink themselves into a stupor. Young Blakeney and his colleagues in the 28th, who you'll recall from the last episode, arriving with the rearguard, were shocked at what they found. Bembibre exhibited all the appearance of a place lately stormed and pillaged. Every door and window was broken, every lock and fastening was forced. Rivers of wine ran through the houses and into the streets, where they lay fantastic groups of soldiers, many of them with their firelocks broken. Women, children, Spaniards and muleteers, all apparently inanimate, except when here and there a leg or arm was seen to move, while the wine oozing from their lips and nostrils seemed the effect of a gunshot wound. Every floor contained the worshippers of Bacchus, in all their different stages of devotion. Some lay senseless, others staggered. The music was perfectly in character. Savage roars announcing present hilarity were mingled with groans issuing from, from fevered lips, disgorging the wine of yesterday. Obscenity was public sport. In fairness, that sounds like most English towns on a Saturday night, at least when I was young. <laughs> Maybe things are better now. The next morning, inevitably, hundreds of troops were unable to stand, still hungover and exhausted from their marathon drinking session. As the rest of the army moved out, the rearguard tried desperately to round up the stragglers and force them to march. Many refused or were incapable and had to be left behind, at the mercy of the French. Even good soldiers lost their discipline and were abandoned, as Captain Gordon bemoaned. Thomas Smith, an old soldier of my troop, was amongst the number of those left at Bembibre, being too drunk to march with the baggage and dismounted men. 
He did good service at Sahagoon, where I saw his sword covered in blood from hilt to point. The plunder he obtained from the many killed amounted to thirty or forty doubloons, and from that day he was scarcely ever sober. He was in general a good soldier. I was much vexed at losing him. Many of the stragglers who fell behind were caught by the French cavalry, and they soon regretted their actions. Here's Gordon again. A poor wretch was conducted to the officer's fire by a patrol who perceived a figure, which he at first took to be a wild hog, creeping amongst some stunted copsewood that bordered the road near our advanced post. He turned out to be one of a numerous band of stragglers who had been overtaken and sabred by the French. He had drawn his shirt over his head to keep the frosty air from his wounds, and when the covering was removed from his face it presented the most shocking spectacle I have ever beheld. It was impossible to distinguish a single feature. The flesh of his cheek and lips were hanging in collops. His nose was slit and his ears, I think, were cut off. Besides the wound on his head, he had received many in different parts of the body, and it was surprising that he should have been able to escape in the feeble state to which he was reduced. In addition to his wounds, it is probable that his limbs were frostbitten, for it was quite horrible to see the manner in which he cowered near the fire and raked the glowing embers towards him with his fingers. It was with difficulty he could make himself understood, but we learned from him that the loiterers had been most barbarously treated by the enemy. Sir John Moore was livid with the way the army was acting. Things were really going downhill quick. He was losing his patience, and the 28th Regiment were amongst those that he berated. Robert Blakeney was with them when... We were immediately formed in contiguous columns in a field by the road when the commander of the forces rode up and addressed us in the most forcible and pathetic manner. After dwelling on the outrageous disorders and want of discipline in the army, he concluded by saying... None but principled cowards would get drunk in the presence of the enemy, nay, in the very sight of the enemies of our country, and sooner than survive the disgrace of such infamous misconduct, I hope that the first cannonball fired by the enemy may take me in the head. He then rode off and returned to Villafranca. This feeling and pungent address made a deep impression on every individual present. End quote. The retreat was quickly deteriorating further, becoming a brutal, unforgiving march of death. Converging French armies threatened to cut off Moore's line of retreat, and so he pushed the soldiers faster and harder than ever. The inhospitable mountains of northwestern Spain were carpeted with thick snow now. Freezing rain intermittently then came down in sheets, drenching the men and turning the roads into rivers of mud. There was no shelter. Everybody was exhausted and miserable. Our old friend Thomas Pocock with the 71st suffered as much as anybody. This is him. The road was one line of bloody footmarks from sore feet of the men, and on its sides lay the dead and the dying. Human nature could do no more. Donald MacDonald, the hardy Highlander, began to fail. He, as myself, had long been barefooted and lame. He that encouraged me to proceed, now himself lay down to die. For two days he had been almost blind and unable from a severe cold to hold up his head. We sat down together. Not a word escaped our lips. We looked around then at each other and closed our eyes. We felt there was no hope. And it wasn't just the rank and file who suffered. John Patterson, an officer with the 50th, later remembered... Lieutenant McCarthy of our regiment, an excellent old officer and intrepid soldier, was among those who suffered the most from excessive fatigue. 
He kept up as long as he had the power. Faint and half frozen, he fell in the snow, and giving himself up to despair, lay for a considerable period in an insensible condition. End quote. But common soldiers like Private Pocock often had little sympathy for their officers. He said, I've seen officers of the guards and others worth thousands with pieces of old blankets wrapped around their feet and legs. The men pointing at them with malicious satisfaction, saying, There goes three thousand a year. Or, There goes the prodigal son on his return to his father, cured of his wonderings. Apologies, sometimes my accents drift off and uh, merge into one another, so <laughs> I hope you can tell one guy from the other. Some officers, though, felt themselves entitled to be helped along by the men, but strict commanders like Robert Crawford of the Light Brigade had other ideas, as Harris remembered. We came to a river that was tolerably wide, but not very deep, which was just as well for us. Accordingly, into the stream went the Light Brigade and Crawford, as busy as a shepherd with his flock, riding in and out of the water to keep his wearied band from being drowned as they crossed over. Presently he spied an officer, who to save himself from being wet through had mounted on the back of one of his men. The sight of such a piece of effeminacy was enough to raise the collar of the general, and in a very short time he was plunging and splashing through the water after them both. Put him down, sir! Put him down! I desire you to put that officer down instantly! And the soldier instantly dropped his burden like a hot potato into the stream and continued through. Return back, sir, said Crawford to the officer, and go through the water like the others. I will not allow my officers to ride upon the men's backs through the rivers. All must take their share alike here. Crawford was a bit of a known uh, disciplinarian, uh, very hard on the men, but it's good to see that he was equally as hard on officers when he felt they weren't doing their duty or, or not living up to what an officer should be. As well as exhaustion, the men were hungry. Food was in really short supply. Rations were limited and the men were forced to make do with whatever they could find. Hard sea biscuits soaked in rum were a favourite. There was also a thing called the doughboy, made by mixing flour with snow using a large flat stone. This became a mainstay of many knapsacks. Patterson said it had a, a form and substance not unlike a nine-pound shot. At times, even these meagre rations weren't available, and the men had to be very creative in their quest to eat. One night, Robert Blakeney had to share his quarters with the men he commanded. He recalled, A soldier named Savage, immediately on entering the room, began to crow like a cock, and then placed his ear close to the keyhole of a door leading into another apartment which was locked. After remaining in this attentive position for some moments, he removed to another part of the room and, re room and repeated his crowing. I began to think the man was drunk or insane, never before having perceived him in the slightest want of proper respect for his superiors. Upon my asking him what he meant by such extraordinary conduct in the presence of his officers, he with a smile replied, I believe we have them, sir. This seemingly unconnected reply confirmed in me the opinion I had formed of his mental derangement, the more particularly as his incoherent reply was instantly followed by another crow. This was answered apparently in the same voice, but somewhat fainter. Savage then jumped up crying, Here they are! and insisted upon having the door opened, and when this was reluctantly done by the inhabitants of the house, a fine cock, followed by many hens, came strutting into the room with all the pomp of a sultan attended by his many queens. 
As strange as it sounds to us now, let's not forget that an army of this period also travelled with wives and children of some of the soldiers. Each regiment were allowed to bring a certain number with them when on campaign, and this was chosen by picking lots. These women had displayed amazing energy and perseverance to keep up as long as they had with the soldiers. John Patterson was witness to the bravery of those marching with the 50th Regiment. He said, Toiling with their regiments through thick and thin, they never failed in their duties, and proved in camp as well as in quarters the most active and persevering in giving aid and useful service. Patient under everything, they were always at hand, foraging, cooking, and rendering all kinds of assistance, while the men, borne down by hard fatigue, were often unable to help themselves. In fact, without the labours of the fair sex, we should not have been able to get on, and I shall ever respect the heroine who has completed the range of her accomplishments by having served with honour in a campaign or two. End quote. An officer of the 52nd Regiment was rescued from falling into the hands of the French by the quick thinking of one of his soldiers' wives. He said, Well do I remember the kind act of a worthy woman, Sally McCann, the wife of a gallant soldier of my company, who, observing me to be falling to the rear from illness and fatigue, whipped off her garters and secured the soles of my boots, which were separating from the upper leathers, and set me on my feet again. A year or so after this I had the opportunity of returning the kindness of poor Sally McCann by giving her a lift on my horse the morning after she'd given birth to a child in the bivouac. But as the retreat intensified, so did the death toll amongst these hardy camp followers. On one occasion during the retreat, Thomas Pocock noticed a crowd of soldiers huddled by the side of the road in silence. As he approached, he was horrified to see the reason why. He says, In the centre lay a woman, young and lovely, though cold in death, and a child, apparently six or seven months old, attempting to draw support from the breast of its dead mother. Tears filled every eye, but no one had the power to aid. While we stood around gazing on this interesting object, then on each other, no one offered to speak. Each heart was so full. Rifleman Harris witnessed other heartbreaking scenes. He said, Soon after a halt beside a turnip field, the screams of a child near me caught my ear and drew my attention to one of our women who was endeavouring to drag along a little boy of about seven or eight years of age. The poor child was apparently completely exhausted and his legs falling under him. The mother had occasionally up to this time been assisted by some of the men, taking it in turn to help the little fellow on. But now all further appeal was vain. No man had the strength more than was necessary for the support of his own carcass, and the mother could no longer raise the child in her own arms as her reeling pace too plainly showed. Still, however, she continued to drag the child along with her. It was a pitiable sight and wonderful to behold the efforts of the poor woman made to keep the boy amongst us. At last the little fellow had not even strength to cry, but with mouth wide open stumbled onwards until both sank down to rise no more. The poor woman herself had for some time looked a moving corpse, and when the shades of evening came down they were far behind amongst the dead and dying on the road. I must say, as both a husband and a father, I find those two anecdotes really uh, quite disturbing. They make me very sad. But let's not forget, for the French pursuers things weren't much better. Napoleon, desperate for glory and a great victory over the British, was rapidly losing interest in the campaign. 
Chasing a drunken rabble across the Spanish mountains in the middle of winter wasn't his idea of fun. I'm sure it wasn't for his men either. He'd been gradually detaching units and sending them to other areas of Spain. And when a courier arrived with news of scheming against him in Paris, he immediately decided to return home. On the 1st of January 1809, his entire imperial guard were directed to turn around and make for Valladolid. On the 2nd of January, he issued his final orders, leaving Marshal Soult, the Duke of Dalmatia, in command with 29,000 men for the pursuit of Moor, and a further 16,000 in reserve at Astorga. It was still a large force, large enough to crush the British, if they could catch them. Major General Edward Paget, commander of the British Reserve Division, was angry. The unit was rapidly falling apart around him and he needed to do something about it. On the morning of the 3rd of January, outside the village of Casabellos, he formed his men into a large hollow square facing inwards. An example was needed and the court-martial was quickly set up. For a number of hours, the men were forced to watch as the cat-o'-nine-tails cracked viciously, striping the backs of those caught drunk or looting. Around midday, two men shivering from cold and fear were sentenced to death. Ropes were quickly found and placed around their necks. Robert Blakeney recalls what happened next. Being conducted to an angle of the square, the ropes were fashioned to the branches of a tree which stood there, and at the same time the delinquents were lifted up and held on the shoulders of persons attached to the provost marshal. At the same time, a cavalry officer of high regimental rank galloped into the square and reported to General Paget that the pickets were engaged and retiring. I'm sorry for it, sir, said the general, but this information is of a nature which would induce me to expect a report rather by a private dragoon than from you. You'd better go back to your fighting pickets, sir, and animate your men to a full discharge of their duty. General Paget was then silent for a few moments, and apparently suffering under great excitement. He at length addressed the square by saying, My God, is it not lamentable to think that instead of preparing the troops confined to my command to receive the enemies of their country, I'm preparing to hang two robbers? The general again became silent for a moment, and our pickets were heard retiring up the opposite side of the hill and along the road which flanked it on our left. After a moment's pause, he addressed the men a second time. If I spare the lives of these two men, will you promise to reform? The same awful silence continued until some of the officers whispered to the men to say yes. Then the word loudly, rapidly spread through the square. Yes, yes! With impressive timing, six or eight squadrons of French cavalry now appeared on the skyline, scattering the pickets of the first 95th rifles and a small number of horsemen from the 15th Hussars. Under the command of the dashing young General Colbert, who some said was the most handsome man in the French army, they forced the bridge over the river Sewer and charged four abreast. Blakeney recalled, During this onset, he means attack, they were severely galled by the 95th, who by this time had lined the hedges on either side of the road within a few yards of their flanks, and by our own light company immediately in their front, who it was evidently their intention to break through as they rode close to our bayonets but their ranks being much thinned by the destructive flanking fire of the rifles and of the standing ranks of the light company, their charge was vain. They wheeled about and underwent the same ordeal in retiring, so that but few survived to tell their tragic tale. The road was absolutely choked with their dead. End quote. 
During this fight around the bridge, General Colbert himself was also killed in one of the most celebrated individual achievements of the Peninsula War. Rifleman Thomas Plunkett, an Irishman of the 95th, angry at the death of a number of colleagues, laid on his back in the snow, adopting the supine position for long-range rifle shooting, and shot Colbert out of his saddle, killing him immediately. The distance of this shot has been debated endlessly, some saying it was 500 metres. Though given the limitations of the Baker rifle, more than 300 metres does seem a bit unlikely. To prove it wasn't a fluke, Plunkett then killed Colbert's aide-de-camp, who had rushed to help his commanding officer. Whatever the exact truth of the incident, it was an excellent piece of marksmanship that really disheartened the French. Sir John Moore now arrived to take command and ordered the 20th and 52nd regiments to withdraw from the line of the river to the summit of the ridge behind. Shortly afterwards, French infantry joined the fight and moved forward to attack. Once again, Robert Blakeney was there and leaves us this report. A heavy column of the enemy were pushed forward towards the left of our position, in front of where the 52nd Regiment had been posted. Their intention was evidently to cross the stream, but their column soon became unveiled. Our guns again wheeled out onto the road and opened such a destructive fire that although close to the sewer, they hastily retired. The skirmish, hitherto sharply maintained by the 95th and 52nd against their opponents, now slackened and shortly ceased. The French tireurs and cavalry, perceiving the failure of their infantry attack on our left and that they were fast retiring, retired also. This was, by the way, just before the Light Brigade uh, split off to head for, for Vigo. As night approached, the combat fizzled out. The engagement, though minor, had been successful to, for the British and helped to reinvigorate the men of the rearguard. Moore, having gained the time he needed, now ordered the retreat to continue. But it wasn't easy. The men's blood was up, and like any Brit worth his salt, it was some time before they could be persuaded to keep marching and to stop looking for more Frenchmen to kill. By the way, if you're listening to the audio of this, I have done a YouTube version as well, which you can find on the Redcoat History YouTube channel. And on there, I'm going to try and animate some maps and some pictures that might give you a better idea of, of the route of the retreat and also some of the skirmishes and battles, where they were and what happened. Shortly after the engagement at Casabellos, another disaster struck. As the French closed upon the rearguard, the slow-moving bullock carts that carried the army's money supplies began to fall further and further back from the main column. During the afternoon of the 5th of January, an icy wind howled through the narrow mountain pass between Nogales and Cerizal. As the rearguard plodded forward, their legs burning from 36 hours of marching without rest, Robert Blakeney witnessed General Paget and Mr Courtney of the Paymaster General's department arguing. Courtney, worried that his animals couldn't keep up, had requested fresh beasts to draw the money-laden carts forward. Blakeney later recalled the conversation that followed. Pray, sir, said General Paget, do you take me for a bullock driver or a muleteer? Or, knowing who I am, have you the presence of mind coolly to tell me that through a total neglect or ignorance of your duty, you are about to lose the treasure of the army committed to your charge, which, according to your account, must shortly fall into the hands of the enemy? He pointed to the French advance guard who were closing upon us. 
Had you, sir, the slightest conception of your duty, you would have known that you ought to be a day's march ahead of the whole army, instead of hanging back with your founded bullocks and carts upon the rearmost company of the rearguard, and making your report too at the very moment when the company is absolutely engaged with the advancing enemy. What, sir? To come to me and impede my march with your carts, and ask me to look for bullocks when I should be free from all encumbrances, and my mind occupied by no other care than that of disposing my troops to the best advantage in resisting the approaching enemy. It is doubtful, sir, whether your conduct can be attributed to ignorance and neglect alone. There were other expressions, equally strong, which are now in part forgotten. Yet the words, ought to be hanged, have been hanging on my memory for many years. Marshal Salt's heavy columns were closely approaching in front, and their balls coming amongst us obliged us to retire. We now retired and soon came up to the treasure, contained in two carts lugged by foundering bullocks, moving so slowly as to render motion scarcely visible. As the light company passed to the rear, the regiment were drawn up close to the carts, and preparation commenced for the fall of the dollars. As they rolled down the precipice, their silvery notes were accompanied by noble bass, for two guns were thundering forth their applause into Salt's dark brown column. By the way, someone advised me that Sue is pronounced Salt, not Sue, so apologies for that in the last episode. If I'm wrong again, just let me know. I'll keep correcting it. Surely someone knows. The men watched the money disappear, none of them daring to risk leaving the ranks to fill their pockets. The same, though, can't be said of the camp followers, one in particular scrambling down the hillside to take her share. In the historical record of the 52nd Regiment, it says, The wife of the regimental Master Taylor Maloney, who was a merry one and often beguiled a weary march to the men with her tales, was so successful that her fortune was apparently made. The poor woman went through all the subsequent perils and hardships of the retreat, weighed down by silver dollars. But on stepping from the boat to the ship's side on embarking at Karunia, her foot slipped and down she went like a shot, never to rise again. I think there's a moral in that story. It's worth thinking about. Anyway, later that day, Blakeney and the rearguard were called upon to fight another action, this time at the village of Constantino. The engineers had failed to fully destroy the bridge and a column of French infantry tried to storm across it but were badly cut up. At 11pm, the rearguard pulled out, falling back towards Lugo. By now, the retreat had become so difficult, the pace so fast, and the conditions so tortuous, that even solid, trustworthy troops were beginning to fall behind from exhaustion and lack of food. General Moore, realising that his army was on its last legs, decided that he had to stand and fight. He hoped that the promise of combat would restore order to his demoralised soldiers. As if to illustrate how bad things had become, the dragoon who was sent with his message to General Fraser, ordering his division to halt, got drunk en route and lost the dispatch. Fraser's men therefore marched a whole day in the wrong direction before having to return without food or rest. On the 6th of January, Moore issued the following general order to try and boost morale. It says... The advance guard of the French is already close to us, and it is to be presumed that the main body is not far distant. An action may therefore be hourly expected. If the generals and commanding officers of regiments, feeling for the honour of their country and of the British arms, wish to give the army a fair chance of success, they will exert themselves to restore order and discipline in the regiments, brigade and divisions which they command.' 
As our old friend Captain Gordon of the 15 Fazars recalled, the promise of combat succeeded in lifting the spirits of the retreating troops. Stragglers returned to their posts and drunkenness was temporarily abated. He said, Nothing could be more gratifying than to remark the total change in their conduct. It appeared that with the prospect of having been led against the foe, they had at once recovered all those qualities for which British soldiers are peculiarly estimable. Every order was obeyed with alacrity, and not a trace remained of the discontent and insubordination which had been so general for the past few days. Both the officers and the men expressed the most ardent desire to bring the contest to an issue, and notwithstanding the inferiority of our numbers, a confident anticipation of victory filled every breast. But the accompanying order to commence pipe claying of belts and polishing kit wasn't so popular, and that work was accompanied by much grumbling. The British position was three miles outside of the town of Lugo. So just to give you an idea, this is sort of northwest Spain, um, kind of the opposite side to where most Brits go on holiday, I guess, the opposite side of the country. The British right flank was protected by the unfordable Minho River, and the ground to their front was broken up by vineyards and low stone walls. On the left were mountains and a screen of cavalry. Moore knew that he only had enough ammunition left to fight one big battle, and that if he lost, his army was going to be wiped out. The 7th of January 1809 dawned wet and grey. Battered by rain, the French under General Soult formed up on a high ridge opposite the British and soon began a cannonade which was gleefully returned by the British gunners. But the French were cautious. Soult wasn't sure whether he was facing Moore's entire army or just the rearguard. Much of his own force was still strung out through the mountains and, like the British, the rest of them were exhausted and short on supplies. Only much later in the day was an attack finally ordered. A number of regiments assaulted the British right flank. In a short, sharp encounter, the elite brigade of guards soaked up the French attack before driving them back. No, those dogs weren't at the battle. They're outside my house, and uh, I keep waiting for them to finish, but uh, I might be here some time. So you know what? Let's crack on. Ignore the barking of dogs if you can, although let's pretend there were some rabid dogs running around the battlefield. With his right flank secure, Sir John Moore then spotted French skirmishers on his left, advancing against his pickets. He galloped over and gave a short rousing speech and ordered the 51st and 76th regiments of Leif's brigade to attack. With a cheer they charged, driving the French back on the points of their bayonets, inflicting 300 casualties. The French now paused, Soult patiently waiting for the rest of his army to catch up before deciding to launch any further attacks. The British spent the night bivouacked on the ridge, without food and shelter, but exhilarated by the expectation of battle first thing in the morning. But the anticipated fight never came. On the morning of the 8th, they formed up only to be ignored by the French, who had now decided to wait for further reinforcements from Marshal Ney's corps. Moore couldn't allow that to happen. He did not have enough men to beat a combined French force. That night, with no other option, Moore decided to continue the retreat. The flickering orange glow from dozens of fires kept burning to fool the French. They lit filthy gaunt faces of the British soldiers as they silently began the final leg of the retreat to Carunia. It was 10pm on the night of the 8th of January 1809. 
more, nervous in case his troops should get separated in, in the pitch black, sent out the following general order. It is evident that the enemy will not fight this army, notwithstanding the superiority of his numbers, but will endeavour to harass and tease it upon its march. The commander of the forces requests that it may be carefully explained to the soldiers that their safety depends solely upon their keeping their divisions and marching with their regiments, that those who stop in villages or straggle on the march will inevitably be cut off by the French cavalry, who have hitherto shown little mercy even to the feeble and infirm who have fallen into their hands. The army has still eleven leagues to march. The soldiers must make an exertion to accomplish them. The rearguard cannot stop, and those who fall behind must take their fate. End quote. But once again, the weather was not on Moore's side. Almost immediately, a vicious storm began. The wind and rain so violent that the marks laid out for unit guides to follow were lost, condemning much of the army to a night spent marching in circles, trying to work out where they were and where they were going. Blakeney, as usual, was with the rearguard, who had managed to keep their order. But as his account shows, the whole army was in a state of utter and complete confusion. This is him. The reserve arrived without fail on the road leading to Corunia, as was previously ordered, and was the only division, as well as I recollect, who did arrive at the time appointed. The other divisions, having missed their way, wandered about the greater part of the night before they gained the road. Therefore the reserve, the proper rearguard, moved forward, but slowly making frequent halts to await the arrival of the misled divisions. Frequent halts and slow marching was doubly harassing to the reserve. We felt all the fatigue and anxiety of the rearguard with most of our own troops behind us. On the approach of any number of persons we were immediately on the alert, not knowing whether to receive friends or resist foes. The night being pitch dark and rainy, this continual halting and turning around was excessively tormenting, and the men grumbled much. Add to this that General Paget gave a most positive order that no man should, on any account whatever, quit the ranks or get off the road, not even during any of our halts. This may appear harsh, but if the strictest discipline had not been maintained in the reserve, the army would have been exposed to imminent danger. So just to reiterate, the reserve division were the rearguard. Um, but it was so confusing, they didn't even know if they were at the back or in the middle. It must have been a nightmare for them. The next day, to compound the problems, General Baird, trying to give his men a much-needed respite, allowed his division to take refuge in some houses away from the main road. It then proved impossible to get them back in their ranks and follow orders. Blakeney and his men tried their best to gather the stragglers, but often in vain. He says, We kicked, thumped, struck with the butt-ends of the firelocks, pricked with swords and bayonets but to little purpose. There were three or four detached buildings in which some wine was found and which also contained a large quantity of hay. And between the effects of the wine and the inviting warmth of the hay, it was totally impossible to move the men. On the 9th of January 1809, as the bulk of the army gathered at a town called Betanzos, the stragglers tried their best to catch up. Losses on the retreat between Lugo and Betanzos amounted to more than the rest of Moore's campaign thus far. Hundreds of men were taken prisoner. Within sight of the rearguard and General Paget himself, one group of stragglers showed that they still had some fight, engaging in an impressive skirmish with French cavalry. Here's Blakeney again. 
a soldier of the 28th, really a good man, who had been the mule of Dr. Dakers, to whom he was Batman, having fallen in the rear because the animal which carried the surgeon's panniers was unable to keep up with the regiment, stopped at the houses mentioned, and getting up before daybreak to follow the regiment, he was the first to discover the enemy as they advanced rather cautiously, no doubt taking the stragglers for our proper rear guard. The doctor's man shouted to the stragglers to get up and defend themselves against the French cavalry. But before they could unite into anything like a compact body, some were sabred or taken. He then gallantly took command of all those who, roused to a sense of danger, contrived a formation, until using his own words he was superseded by a senior officer, a sergeant who then assumed supreme command. The sergeant was called William Newman and was with the 43rd Regiment. For his own initiative and his bravery, he was rewarded with a commission to the 1st West India Regiment, while sadly the lowly doctor's Batman seems to have been forgotten. On the 11th of January, Blakeney and the 28th were tasked with protecting an engineer officer who was employed to bro up the bridge at Batanzos in order to slow the French pursuit. Like many of the bridge demolitions during this campaign, things failed to go to plan. Blakeney recalled, the desired explosion now took place, by which it was confidently expected that for a short time at least we should be separated from our teasing pursuers and thus be enabled to arrive in good order before Carunia. Our expectations were, however, blasted by the explosion itself, for as soon as the rubbish had fallen down and the smoke cleared away, to our great surprise and annoyance we perceived that one half of only one arch had been destroyed, the other half and one of the battlements remaining firm. On witnessing the abortive result of this labour and fuss, General Paget, who was close by, exclaimed in astonishment, What? Another abortion? And pray, sir, how do you account for this failure? The engineer officer replied that he could account for it no other way than that the barrel of powder, which affected the partial destruction, had in its explosion either choked or shaken from its direction the train leading to the second barrel, which consequently still remained whole in the undemolished part of the arch. Upon this, the general demanded to know within what period of time the disaster could be remedied. Uh, in less than 20 minutes, sir, was the engineer's reply. End quote. General Paget then ordered Blakeney and the Light Company to clamber across the remaining parts of the bridge and to stop the French catching them by surprise and capturing the, the bridge before the engineer could finish his work. Close to the end of the bridge which we now approached, a branch road turned off at a right angle, winding around the base of the hill upon which Betanzos stands. At this angle and on the side of the road next to the bridge was a large house, which intercepted the view between the bridge and the turn of the branch road. And so we got on to the wrong road by mistake. Captain Gom, General Disney's Major of Brigade, was sent to recall us. We quickly returned, followed by approaching French cavalry. We moved in double-quick time over the narrow part of the bridge, which the men had nicknamed the Devil's Neck. The enemy, perceiving us in such a hurry, no doubt attributed the haste to timidity. And it may be remarked, in all contending animals, that as courage oozes out of one, it appears imbibed by its adversary. For scarcely had the light company passed twenty yards beyond the Devil's Neck, when the cavalry of the French gave a loud cheer, sure indication of a charge. I instantly gave the word, right about turn, forward! I now found myself in front of the men who had dropped to one knee. A mounted French officer darting in front rode full tilt at me. I cut at him, but my sword approached no nearer than his horse's nose. In fact, my little infantry sabre was a useless weapon opposed to an immense mounted dragoon. 
After the failure of my attack, I held my sword horizontally over my head, awaiting the dragoon's blow, for it was more dangerous to turn around than it was to stand firm. At this critical moment, a man of my company named Oates called out, Mr. Blakeney, we've spun him! And at that same instant, the dragoon fell dead at my feet. Oates, who had seen my dangerous predicament, had stayed on his feet behind me and waited for the proper moment before taking steady aim and sending his ball through the dragoon's head just as his sabre was about to descend upon mine. I flew with a bound to the rear and regained the five or six paces incautiously advanced. The cavalry were now up to our bayonets, which covered the whole Pontine Isthmus. The dragoons now charged forward until they came to the gap created by the earlier explosion and were forced to stop. The dragoons in the rear, not knowing the cause of the check, rode furiously forward and, crowding their front ranks who were pulling up or wheeling around and exposed to our fire, the greatest confusion ensued. Finding all attempts to break through our light company fruitless and receiving flanking fire from our battalion's grenadiers, the French wheeled around and galloped off at full speed. The light company, now free to act on their feet, poured a wicked, well-directed fire into their ranks. So hot was the peppering and so anxious were the rear squadrons to get away that they refused to turn and rode directly into the town of Betanzos. End quote. Much to the annoyance of Blakeney and also Generals Paget and Moore, who were watching events from close by, the engineers still proved unable to finish the demolition. The rear guard, therefore, were condemned to remain on alert by the bridge until the rest of the army had crossed the bridge at El Burgo, ten miles further on towards Coruña. The French, having been stung once, decided not to attack again. While Blakeney and the men of the rearguard were kept busy at the bridge, the rest of the army raced ahead towards Coruña and the sea. Private Pocock of the 71st was thrilled when on the 11th he and his regiment finally realised the end of the retreat was approaching. He said, How shall I describe my sensations at the first sight of the ocean? I felt all my former despondency drop from my mind. My galled feet trod lighter on the icy road. Every face near me seemed to brighten up. Britain and the sea are two words which cannot be disunited. The sea and home appeared one and the same. August Schaumann, a Hanoverian with the commissary department who we met in the last episode, was equally thrilled at reaching the town and wasted no time making up for the misery of the retreat. He says... My clothes are all torn and caked with hard mud, my shirt is hanging through my breeches, and my decayed socks are showing through my boots. The first things I brought in Karunia were boots and socks. In fact, I took good care to freshen myself up and to compensate myself for the sufferings and privations I had undergone. When I was not on duty, I spent my time in cafes and confectioners' shops. I spent my evenings laughing and joking in the company of ladies, and often had drinking bouts with the other officers. But despite the improving weather and the army finally reaching its destination, General Moore wasn't happy. The majority of the Royal Navy and transport ships sent to rescue his men had originally been sent to Vigo, where the light brigades were sent, and were now trying to reach Coruña as quickly as possible. Moore knew that this delay made a final battle with the French inevitable. On the evening of the 11th, Blakeney and his light company, I tell you, these guys had a hard retreat, found themselves at the rear once more as the engineers set out to blow yet another bridge. This time it was the one across the Miro River at the small village of El Borgo, four miles from Coruña. He recalled, Having crossed the bridge, we were drawn up close to its rear. Many remonstrated against our nearness, but were seemingly assured of being more than safe, 
Thus, hybrid scientific theory scorned the vulgarity of common sense. The explosion at length took place and completely destroyed two arches. Large blocks of masonry whizzed awfully over our heads and caused what Sult's cavalry could not effect during the retreat. The light company of the 28th and Captain Cameron's company of the 95th broke their ranks and ran like turkeys and crammed their heads into any hole which promised security. One man of the 28th was killed and four others severely wounded. So for once the engineers got it right, except this time a bit too much charge was used and it nearly destroyed part of the rear guard. <laughs> With the bridge at El Burgo blown and the French still to arrive in strength, the shattered British army got some rest as they waited for the Royal Navy. It had been a harrowing 12 days, especially for the men of the reserve like Blakeney and the 28th who had marched harder and rested less than the rest of the army, who they had now taken to nicknaming Clodhoppers. Some of the troops were now issued with new muskets and shoes from Carunia's stores. Powder was distributed from the town's magazine. But on the morning of the 13th, the magazine was blown up. 4,000 pounds of powder were destroyed. The detonation shook the town, causing massive damage and confusion. Captain Gordon remembered the shock it caused. The whole town was thrown into considerable alarm about 9 o'clock this morning by a tremendous explosion which shook the buildings like an earthquake. A number of windows were broken by the concussion, and inhabitants of both sexes rushed into the street, many of them only half-dressed, with terror in their countenances, and falling on their knees began to pray with an energy proportioned to their fright. I was at breakfast at the time this happened, and the idea which first suggested itself to my mind was that the enemy was bombarding the town and that a shell had fallen upon the house. But as the crash was not repeated, I attributed it to the real cause, and on reaching a point which commanded a view of the country towards our lines, an immense column of black smoke which marked the site of the explosion was slowly rolling away. As the sky was bright and the air quite calm, the cloud it formed rose to an immense height and did not disperse for a considerable time. The inhabitants of the village in which the magazine situated had been sufficiently warned of their danger and desired to remove, but they paid little attention to the cautions they received, and it is probable that many of them perished owing to their obstinacy as the place was reduced to a heap of ruins. So just to clarify, my understanding is that that was a deliberate explosion to stop the powder from falling into the hands of the French, but not everybody was aware it was happening, and so it, it, it shocked a lot of people, as you can imagine. Finally, on the 14th of January, the much-anticipated transport ships began to arrive in the harbour. The sick were quickly loaded on board, as well as 50 artillery pieces and the best horses. But there wasn't enough space on board the vessels for all of the animals, and the cavalry were forced to slaughter them. Harrowing work. Many hundred fine animals were shot to prevent the French from benefiting by their services, and in executing the order for the destruction of these irrational companions of their toils, the hearts of the soldiers were more affected with feelings of pity and grief than by all the calamities and the misery they had witnessed during the retreat. On this occasion, the town exhibited the appearance of a vast slaughterhouse. Wounded horses, mad with pain, were to be seen running through the streets, and the ground was covered with mangled carcasses of these noble animals. For in consequence of their uncertain aim with the pistol, the men were latterly directed to cut the throats of the horses instead of attempting to shoot them. Thomas Pocock also witnessed this sight. He recalled, On my return to camp, I witnessed a most moving scene. The beach was covered with dead horses and resounded with the reports of the pistols that were carrying this havoc amongst them. 
The animals, as if warned by the dead bodies of their fellows, appeared frantic, neighed and screamed in the most frightful manner. Many broke loose and galloped along the beach with their manes erect and their mouths wide open. End quote. With this terrible task complete, the cavalry, including Captain Gordon, now embarked. The country around Karunia was rocky, and Moore decided that there would be no use to him in the coming battle. This was going to be a battle for the infantry. So just to describe the area a bit, the city of Karunia is on a, a narrow peninsula surrounded by bastions. But the walls weren't strong enough to withstand bombardment by modern artillery and falling back on them would have allowed the French a clear field of fire into the harbour where the transports were massed. Moore had to decide where to give battle. After closely examining the ground, he realised that his best option was a ridge called Monte Miro, two miles south of the town. It was a strong feature, but it was overlooked by a much longer and higher one called the Peñasquedo, which was too extensive to be held by his small army. Montemero wasn't perfect, but it was the best he could do. After the rigours and heavy losses of the retreat, Moore could now muster a force of around 15,000 infantry with nine six-powder guns. His left flank rested against the impassable estuary of the Mero River, while the right was dangerously open, forcing Moore to position a larger part of his army there. Paget's reserve division, including Blakeney and his colleagues of the 28th, were positioned by the village of Oza in the hollow behind the Montemero Ridge, while Fraser's division was even further to the British rights, on the heights of Santa Margarita. If you get a chance, look on the YouTube version of this podcast. Just look for Redcoat History YouTube channel, uh, and I'll put a map of the battlefield. Hope's division, including Pocock and the 71st, was on the extreme left against the river and commanded the road from Betanzos, while Baird's division, including John Patterson and the 50th, held the centre around the small village of Elvina, which was a maze of small walled houses built around a chapel. The French under Marshal Soult had been slow to gather. Let's not forget, they were also exhausted and their supply lines were stretched. By the 14th, though, they had fixed up the bridge at El Burgo and began streaming across. Approximately 20,000 Frenchmen advanced, gingerly occupying the heights of Peñasquedo, overlooking the British position. All was now set for the final decisive battle of the campaign. The 16th of January 1809 was an overcast morning. The British troops were under arms early and were desperate to have a crack at the French before they embarked for home. Battle finally seemed likely, as the evening before had seen a sharp skirmish between the rival pickets. Lieutenant Colonel Mackenzie of the 5th Regiment had been killed, as he and his men tried to drive off two guns that the French had placed on the slopes of Palavea. But dawn came and went with no sign of a French attack, and the British turned their attention to the final embarkation which was planned for that night. But, sometime after one o'clock, things changed again. The sound of heavy gunfire reverberated around the streets of Karunia. Lunches were left half-eaten as thousands of people scrambled to balconies to try and see what was happening. Moore, who had returned to the city to organise the final details of the embarkation, now received a report from General Hope that the enemy's lines were getting under arms. This information was soon confirmed by a French deserter. Seems a strange time to desert, doesn't it, just as an aside. Why would you desert just as a, an enemy army is uh, about to be attacked by you and could potentially be wiped out and then where are you left at? 
Anyway, Moore was suddenly full of energy. He took his horse and dashed to the front. He desperately needed a victory that would bring some glory to what had been a pretty disappointing campaign, almost, some might say, embarrassing in some ways. Already he was thinking of his reputation and the questions he would have to answer from the politicians and the press when he returned home. A decisive defeat of the French here would soften that criticism. Blakeney and his colleagues of the 28th were already boarding their ships for home when the battle started and they were hastily recalled to the front. He says, We were told that in consequence of our general good conduct during the retreat and having covered the army at Carunia for two whole days, we, he means the reserve division, should be first to embark and thus have time to make ourselves comfortable. All our baggage and such stock as we could procure was shipped and after the men had dined we marched towards the transports. Our minds were now occupied by thoughts of home, but we had not proceeded above a hundred yards when we heard the firing of the guns. The division halted to a man, as if by word of command each looked with anxious inquiry. But we were not kept long in suspense. An aide-de-camp came galloping at full speed to arrest our progress, telling us that an extraordinary movement was taking place throughout the enemy's lines. We were instantly countermarched. So although Marshal Soult's army was much bigger, the British army was pretty well concealed by the hills, rocks and gorse, making Soult wary of launching an attack against a force of unknown size. Eventually, as the day wore on, he built up his courage and sent Mermet's division, consisting of 12 battalions, to storm the village of Elvina. The left and centre of British line were kept busy by his skirmishers. Soult's plan was to then throw a left hook behind the British right flank and cut off the bulk of Moore's army. By two o'clock his infantry were advancing, a swarm of light troops with the hard-drinking, foul-mouthed General Jardin leading the way. Defending Elvina was Bentinck's brigade, with the 4th Regiment on the right of the British line, the Highlanders of the 42nd on the left and John Patterson and the 50th in the centre. The British stood firm as the round shot battered them. Smoke quickly enveloped the valley as the skirmishers of both sides began to fire. Patterson later recalled, for the purpose of covering his forward movements, a heavy cannonade was poured down by the enemy from a masked battery on the elevated ridge. By this plunging fire, our ranks were much thinned and the round shot booming on every side scattered about the splinters, sand and stones that fell in showers upon our heads. The pickets now being thrown back from the weight of fire, our men were ordered to advance to their support. Major Napier in front of the 50th gave the word, cheering as he led boldly forward, passing the enclosure and clearing all before them in superior style, they entered the village of Elvina. The fighting in the village was brutal. The French took cover in the chapel and rained a murderous fire on the British infantry from the roof and windows. But the grenadier company of the 50th were sent to dislodge them. Patterson recalled, Captain William Clunes, with cool and determined bravery, marched his company to attack them and having with all due ceremony introduced his grenadiers to their acquaintance, the powerful fellows would instantly have demolished the chapel in order to eject the congregation therein assembled, had they not been hindered by their leader, who with the greatest sang-froid imaginable, took his stand by the door to the building, and grasping an Indian cane of stout dimensions, threatened destruction to the inmates if they did not discontinue their ball practice and surrender to a man. Astounded by his stentor-like tone and his huge size, the garrison resolved at all hazards to evacuate the premises accordingly. With a desperate rush they sallied out. Men were slain upon the spot or taken. 
The contrast between the tall and stalwart grenadier and the diminutive Frenchman was truly ridiculous, and the manner in which the gigantic son of Mars turned out the warriors of Napoleon without once drawing a sword, and while shot was flying as thick as hail, was a scene well remembered by those who were present on that day. End quote. The 50th then tried to push the French back up the ridge, but were severely cut up. Their commanding officer was wounded and captured. Patterson again. Having succeeded in forcing every barrier and cutting our way through the enemy at every point, the main body of the regiment pressed on to the higher ground. Forward! Forward to the hill! was now the cry. Clambering up the steep and craggy ascent, emboldened by the example of their officers, the soldiers were mowed down unmercifully by continuous volleys from the crest of the mountain, almost threatening to annihilate our ranks. But although the eminence appeared to resemble a forlorn hope, Major Napier with determined boldness resolved to carry, by a coup de main, the enemy's stronghold. Waving his sabre in the air, he loudly called upon his men to follow. His enthusiastic spirit had urged him on beyond the foremost of the soldiers when he fell severely wounded. And before we could approach to rescue him, he was borne off speedily to the enemy's lines. End quote. As the fighting continued, the village changed hands a number of times as both sides threw fresh troops into the battle. Moore ordered a battalion of the elite foot guards to attack. But as they moved forward, the 42nd Regiment, low on ammunition and thinking they were now being relieved by the guards, began to retire. Moore had to rush forward, shouting, My brave 42nd! Join your comrades! Ammunition is coming and you have your bayonets! Moore was in direct command by the village. He was a strong believer that a commander should be where the action is hottest. But his position was handicapped by a lack of visibility towards San Cristobal and his right flank. This forced him to expose himself again and again at the northwestern angle of the village. He was too good a target for the French batteries, looking down from the heights of Pen Peñasquedo. As he sat on his horse listening to the reports of his officers, a cannonball struck his left shoulder and hurled him from his horse. His aide-de-camp, Captain Hardinge, takes up the story. I dismounted and taking his hand he pressed mine forcibly, casting his eyes very anxiously towards the 42nd Regiment which was hotly engaged, and his countenance expressed satisfaction when I informed him that the regiment were advancing. Assisted by a soldier of the 42nd, he was removed a few yards behind the shelter of a wall. Colonel Graham Balgowan and Captain Woodford about this time came up and perceiving the state of Sir John's wounds, instantly rode off for a surgeon. Sir John assented to being removed in a blanket to the rear. In raising him for that purpose, his sword hanging on the wounded side touched his arm and became entangled between his legs. I perceived the inconvenience and was in the act of unbuckling it from his waist when he said in his usual tone and manner in a very distant voice, It is as well as it is. I rather it should go out of the field with me. Bleeding heavily, his arm hanging by a string of flesh, he finally allowed himself to be carried from the field in a blanket, well aware that he would never see Britain again. With General Baird also badly wounded, Moore ordered that General Hope should take command of the army. Yeah! Meanwhile, on the right of the line, the French infantry advanced against the 4th Regiment. As the battle raged, Paget's division, positioned around Oza, descended into the valley and came up in support. Blakeney and his men recognised their enemies as the same regiments they'd faced time and again during the retreat. He says, A thousand passions boiled in our breast. 
Our opponents, madly jealous at having their military fame tarnished by the many defeats which they had sustained during the march, determined to regain their laurels. We, on the other hand, had many causes to rouse our hatred and revenge. We painfully recollected the wanton carnage committed on the defenceless stragglers of all ages and sexes at Bembibre, and the many bitter cold nights we passed in the mountains of Galicia. The haughty and taunting insults, too, of our pursuers were fresh in our memory. We were foaming with impatience to beat the enemy, urged forward by mutual hate and wrought up to the highest pitch by twelve days previous fighting. And knowing the approaching battle to be our last farewell, we joined in the fight. Our foes stood firm, but the time occupied in firing was short. We soon came to the charge and shortly the opposing column was dissipated. The French were broken, and as the reserve division pursued them, they were attacked in turn by two regiments of dragoons. But the rocky landscape broke the momentum of the cavalry charge, and this attack was repulsed. The reserve division again swept forward dramatically. General Paget believed that they could have swept up the Pen Peñasquedo Ridge and captured the enemy's main artillery battery if they'd received orders to do so. Meanwhile, shortly after Moore had been wounded, the French again advanced against Elvigne. Mermet, or Mermet, sending down his last reserves with Merle and Renault's brigades in support. In response, the brigade of Manningham quickly marched down the slopes of Montemero. He used his two right-hand battalions, the 1st Battalion of the 1st and 2nd 81st, to batter the advancing columns with flanking fire. In the ensuing fight, the 2nd 81st kept up such a blistering rate of fire that it exhausted all of its ammunition and suffered 150 casualties. The 2nd 59th advanced to relieve them, but shortly afterwards the French retired. As the day drew to a close and the sky darkened, the firing slackened and the two sides slowly began to disengage. By 6pm the battle was over. It had been a close-run thing with both sides still occupying positions close to where they had begun the day. It's hard to give an exact casualty figure as many regiments combined together their losses of the entire retreat with those of the battle. The 50th and 42nd did keep correct records though and we know that Patterson's 50th had two officers killed and three wounded as well as 180 rank and file. The 42nd lost 30, 39 men killed and 111 wounded, including six officers. General Hope, who had taken over command of the British Army after Moore was wounded, estimated that there were between seven to 800 British casualties. Sult's losses are even harder to confirm, but Oman, in his famous history of the peninsula, estimates them to be around 1,500 men. General Hope decided against pursuing the battle any further and instead to focus on embarking the army and making good their escape. Later that night, the twinkling of hundreds of fires dotted the British positions, disguising the fact that the weary men had buried their dead and were silently slipping back to the harbour. A rearguard of about 2,000 troops under Major General Beresford occupied lines just outside the town, while the local Spanish population vowed to fight off any French attack for as long as possible. In Coruña, the badly injured Sir John Moore was in his quarters, the life ebbing out of him. Colonel Anderson, an old friend of his, recalls the scene. After some time, he got very anxious to speak to me, and at intervals got out as follows. Anderson, you know that I've always wished to die this way. He then asked, Are the French beaten? Which he repeated to everyone he knew as they came in. I hope the people of England will be satisfied. I hope my country will do me justice. Anderson, you will see my friends as soon as you can. Tell them everything. Say to my mother. Here his voice quite failed and he was excessively agitated. 
He thanked the surgeons for their trouble. Captain Percy and Stanhope then came into the room. He spoke kindly to both. After some interval he said, Stanhope, remember me to your sister. He pressed my hand close to his body and in a few minutes died without a struggle. At midnight his remains were carried to the citadel, wrapped up in a military cloak and blankets. As day broke his body was buried by a party of the 9th Regiment of Foot. By now the French had realised the ruse and rushed their guns forward to the heights of St Lucia which overlooked the harbour. They began to bombard the British ships causing chaos in the harbour. The commissary August Schaumann recalled, until that moment everything had been quiet and peaceful. But the minute the bombardment started and the shot dropped amongst the shipping and sent splinters whistling all around us, there arose an extraordinary tumult and outcry. In a moment a man of war of 74 guns opened its portholes and returning French fire bombarded the heights until the very harbour shook. Unfortunately, however, our shot had no effect, for the French were securely entrenched behind the rocks and only had to fire blindly among us in order to be sure of hitting at least one of our ships. On board the Martha was our old friend Captain Gordon with 40 fellow cavalrymen from the 15th Hussars. He said, Many ships were obliged to cut their cables, some suffered damage by running foul of each other, and five or six were abandoned by their crews and drifted on shore. The whole of this disorder was occasioned by the bad conduct of the masters of the vessels, who paid no attention to the signals to weigh anchor and stand into the bay, which had been made repeatedly since the break of day. Captain Patterson was unlucky enough to be on board the Mary. Its nervous captain was terrified by the ordeal. He recalls, The panic-stricken man, I'll lose my ship, I'm ruined, he called. And running frantic to the bows, he seized upon an axe and cut the cable. His vessel being thus allowed to swing around, she became unmanageable, and as it was blowing a gale of wind at the time, the unfortunate Mary was driven upon the rocks. The passengers and crew were saved. The troops who narrowly escaped were received by the Thomas Brig. In the hurry of departing from the Mary, no one thought of going below deck for any of his baggage. To escape without delay from the battered vessel was the only object of our ambition. As things calmed down and the transport ships eventually escaped from the harbour, the men finally felt able to try and relax. Here's Schaumann again. I cannot express the joy I felt at being out of all danger and having been spared through all that peril. We all embraced and congratulated each other. Triumphantly, I glanced back towards the French. If ever we should meet again, I muttered to myself, I devoutly hope you may go to the devil. But for some, like Thomas Pocock, the ordeal wasn't yet completely over, as they discovered an unexpected set of problems to contend with. He says, For two days after we came on board, I felt the most severe pains throughout my whole body. The change was so great, from the extreme cold of the winter nights which we had passed almost without covering, to the suffocating heat of the crowded transport. This was not the most disagreeable part. The vermin began to abound. We had not been without them in our march, but now we had dozens for each one we had had them. In vain we killed them. They appeared to increase from the ragged, dirty clothes of which we had no means of freeing ourselves. It was a fast journey home. The ships had the wind behind them and the battered, exhausted men were soon landing in ports up and down Britain. Rifleman Harris, who had boarded his ship at Vigo, recalls the reaction they had. 
The inhabitants flocked down to the beach to see us, and they must have been a good deal surprised by the spectacle we presented. Our beards were long and ragged, our clothes and accoutrements in fragments, with heads swathed in old rags, and our weapons covered with rust, while not a few had now, from toil and fatigue, become quite blind. Blakeney and his company of the 28th were landed at Plymouth, looking in an equally dire state. He recalls, Our appearance on landing was very unseemly, owing principally to the hurry attending our embarkation at Carunia, which took place in the dark and in the presence of the enemy. Scarcely a regiment got on board a vessel which contained their baggage, and the consequence was that on our quitting the ships we presented an appearance of much dirt and misery. The men were ragged, displaying torn garments of all colours, and the people of England, accustomed to witness the high order and unparalleled cleanliness of their national troops, for which they are renowned throughout Europe, and never having seen an army after the termination of a hard campaign, were horror-struck, and persuaded themselves that some terrible calamity must have occurred. Gordon of the 15 Fazars says, On the 1st of February we commenced the march to reoccupy our old quarters but in a very different state from that we appeared in when we traversed the same road three months before. Then, well mounted, completely equipped and filled with anticipation of future glory, we moved in all the pride, pomp and circumstance of war. Now, reduced in numbers, weakened by sickness, baffled in our hopes of fame, ragged and on foot, we bore no resemblance to our former state. And so the British army trickled back to its barracks, battered but not beaten, They'd survived a gruelling campaign against a huge French army, commanded for some of the time at least by Napoleon Bonaparte himself. Frozen and exhausted, with discipline almost completely broken, somehow they had found the will to survive. And sometimes simply surviving and avoiding defeat is a victory in itself. So here's a question before we wrap up. Could the march across the Portuguese border into Spain have ended differently? Sir John Moore was in an impossible position. The Spanish army, who he was hoping to assist, lacked a single commander-in-chief and seemed unwilling to do anything to help their British allies. Moore's knowledge of the country was dire, and he lacked reliable intelligence about the state of the roads. This lack of intelligence meant he unnecessarily split his forces while marching on Salamanca, greatly delaying any possible offensive action. He was short on money and his commissariat was inexperienced and unprepared for such a gruelling campaign. All the cards were stacked against him. It's easy to criticise Sir John Moore now, but let's not forget that he did help to inspire the Spanish resistance. He understood that his campaign was as much to encourage the Spanish to continue the fight as it was for the English to gain a great victory. He had acted boldly and decisively with extreme bravery. When the reality of his situation had become clear, he saw sense and retreated, as any good general must when outnumbered and in danger of being surrounded. Napoleon really wanted to destroy the British, to gain revenge for all the trouble they had caused him. But Sir John Moore and his small forces had kicked the Grand Army in the shins, greatly frustrating Bonaparte in the process. To cap everything else, to cement his standing amongst Britain's great generals, Moore was then killed on the battlefield, adding a dramatic and legendary end to the campaign. Despite all the hardships, 1808 and those first few weeks of 1809, had laid the foundation for what was to become arguably the British Army's finest hour. The Redcoats would no longer fear Boney's Invincibles. All of the disasters of the past could now be forgotten as the war was about to enter a new phase. But that's a story for another day. 
So thanks very much for listening to today's episode, guys. It was a joy to write, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed writing it. The next two episodes will be interviews. I'll be speaking with Rob from the excellent British Muzzleloaders YouTube channel, which is one of my favourites, all about the brown best musket. And then I'll be in conversation with Joshua Proven, the man behind the Adventures in Historyland website. We'll be discussing Wellington's, or should I say Sir Arthur Wellesley's, early life. His family, his schooling, his time in India. It will really help to lay the groundwork for the future episode on the Battle of Talavera and beyond. So, finish gnawing on that chicken leg, splash a little cold water on your face and pick up your trusty musket. We have a long way to go until we reach France. It's going to be a hell of an adventure.